Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. War, the resistance and the application of laws in those very first years of the colony, I think, remain completely unchanged in this in this country. We have had a system of English law imposed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people throughout this country to their detriment. Whose law and who is it for? This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Recently, I hosted a panel at the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Yes, great name. It's all about crime. We're bringing you highlights from a pretty special session called Whose Law and Who's It For that took apart how law, in the Western sense, impacts on the lives of First Nations people. I was joined by First Nations lawyers Karen Isles and Kirsten Gray and writer Tony Birch. We tackled the questions such as what happens when the original justice systems are not taken into account, how are Indigenous people affected, and can two different systems of law or justice actually work in parallel? But if that all sounds like an academic chat, it really wasn't. Our guests weave in some very personal and very raw stories as we navigate the discussion. Tony Birch is a Fitzroy Black. He's an historian who I think first became known in the First Nations community for his really important interventions around um, putting Indigenous perspectives into the narratives around history and particularly during the beginning of the Howard eras. But since then, he's come, come along to be one of our most distinguished First Nations writers. He's written four novels, five short story fiction collections, two books of poetry. His book from last year, collection of short stories, Dark as Last Night, was awarded the Christina Stead Literary Prize and the Steel Rudd Literary Award, and I highly recommend it. And I'm going to start by asking each of you really about the proposition that we're here to discuss, which is whose law and who is it for, since each of you would come to that with your very own personal and cultural perspectives on that. And we might start with you, Tony. Um, thank you very much, Larissa, and, and thank you for fellow panellists. Um, very A great privilege to, to be here. I suppose immediately that I've talked about this a little bit recently and written about it. I suppose for me it's the enormous gap or the contrast and contradiction between some of the so-called treaty discussions that are going on around Australia and particularly it's seemingly advanced in Victoria but we know that there's a treaty reference group in Queensland for etc. There's a, a notional voice to parliament discussion in South Australia and while not wanting to criticise those initiatives, I'm just continually struck by, say, in the Victorian situation, which I know is mirrored across the country, that we have a government that is sitting down with the People's Assembly, the Aboriginal um, Assembly and the, and the commissioners, the Europe commissioners, to discuss a um, statewide treaty, which in some ways, you know, is a recognition of law, but how much of a recognition it is is, is debatable. But the fact is, I find... There's, for me, a, a deep um, problematic contradiction that in many states of Australia where people are discussing Aboriginal law and the potential of its legitimacy, at the same time that there is horrific violence, state violence occurring, particularly against, but not only um, young Aboriginal people, 
when we all saw the shocking um, footage of the um, terrible torture of, of young people at Dundal in Queensland and we had the Royal Commission, we would have expected there would be some valuable outcomes for, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And yet, as an example, say Queensland, where they have a, an advisory body to talk about treaty, we know that um, children as young as 10 are still being locked up in adult prisons. So personally... I find it incomprehensible in some ways that politicians talk about recognising our rights while openly abusing the rights of children at the same time and, and in some cases wantonly slow. So the law and order campaigns that are run by particular politicians of various political makeup, both Labor and Conservative across Australia, is that when they talk about why they need to lock up children, they are quite open about the need to punish these children. So... I couldn't imagine sitting down at a table with those people to negotiate a treaty and philosophically, and I know this is not a widely held view, I always consider that if you want to negotiate a treaty, it's got to be between two people of equal moral worth or two groups who come with equal value of each other. And I don't see that these politicians, they don't deserve our conversation, I don't think. Thank you, Tony. Kirsten? Yeah, thanks, Tony, and thanks, Larissa, for having me here today. Reflecting on that question, whose law, we have inherited, you know, a British legal system um, that was imported uh, into this country. And so, by and large, the experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is an experience of, of that legal system, whether it's through, you know, the criminal justice system, the care and protection system, all the systems, um, and it has a pretty devastating effect on, on our communities. And as, as Tony's reflected, you know, we do have a number of processes, which I think are important acknowledgements of um, trying to, of systems trying to work and acknowledge, work with and acknowledge First Nations peoples. There are contradictions in those, in the way that the Australian government and the state governments and territory governments engage with us in those processes. There, there may be an implicit acknowledgement of First Nations sovereignty in those processes, but having been involved at least in the Queensland process, we can see very clearly post the referendum that there's been a shift in the way that those conversations have been happening, which were once bi bipartisan and are now very shaky. They were considered to be quite strong, the comprehensive consultation processes, the way that the Indigenous and non-Indigenous community kind of endorsed and wrapped themselves around that process initially um, has now somewhat shifted. There had been talk about tr truth-telling um, as well as treaty. I don't know the extent to which any of the modern... Uh, First Nations treaty processes are going to actually acknowledge our, our laws and our ways of being that have always been here and which continue to be practised, even though you may not recognise them um, with your own eyes, they're still there. I don't know the extent to which those processes acknowledge that. But for me, particularly sitting in a post-referendum line, <laughs> I don't really think I can sit here and say that the law is one that's for us. I mean, the Australian Constitution, and it's not really a discussion we had with the referendum itself is inherently racist. It has provisions in there around the race power, for example, which has only ever been exercised to the detriment of First Nations people, um, which is a conversation we didn't really have around the referendum discussion. I just think the devastating impact that those systems have on us, particularly in my experience in a child protection sense, in the overwhelming and devastating impact that has on our families. We, we have kind of throwaway discussions about, oh, the overrepresentation. what are we doing about it? But actually we continue to do the same things. We have a little bit of tinkering with 
policy reform and legislative reform, but by and large we're still being impacted by a very, very violent system. Thank you. And Karen? My mind goes back to the the very first years of um, invasion and colonisation. I'm a descendant of the Darug Aboriginal people along Jarubbin, the Hawkesbury River, but also a descendant of the white British settlers. My, you know, ancient family members would probably call themselves. So when I think about whose law, I think back to those times. And if you've read Secret River, the war, the resistance and the application of laws in those very first years of the colony, I think, remain completely unchanged in this in this country. We have had a system of English law imposed on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people throughout this country to their detriment. That legal system has never protected my ancestors from what I would term genocide. It's never protected against the removal, forcible removal of children from community. It's never protected um, against the rape and sexual assault and forced domestic servitude of Aboriginal women either, let alone the the murders of, of so many Aboriginal people around the country. So for me, I think that there, there really is that fundamental injustice. If you look at policing and the way policing happened in those very first, you know, days, months, weeks and years of the colony, I really don't think anything has particularly changed. That's a great segue because I think particularly what we'll draw out in the discussion going forward with all three of you is the fact that um, we'll be looking at the contemporary issues. So it's a really important background if people think that that's just a thing of the past. And I will start with you, Karen. Why don't we start with why you decided to study law? Well, for me, I have a fabulous auntie, Auntie Meg or Margaret, and she she actually studied um, two degrees at Macquarie University. And for me, I had a grew up with an incredible role model of an auntie, and my grandmother lived near Macquarie University, so we would often, you know, go to the grounds of Macquarie Uni on a weekend on our way to, you know, the the local shopping centre. And so for me, I grew up around having a fabulous role model who had, through her education, travelled the world and worked in education. And then also just being exposed um, to the university was, was really important. The other main influence is my mother. She worked at Gosford Local Court. So I used to grab a lift home with her after school. And so I'd have to hang around a bit. And so I'd sit up the back of the district court and listen to the proceedings. So it was my very own live Judge Judy, really. Um, <laughs> and then my dad, he's got a, an incredible sense of compassion and social justice at the same time in my teenage years, um, the Jabaluka uranium mine was going ahead and the rights and, and wishes of um, the local Aboriginal people were just not being heard. It was um, also um, the French nuclear testing in the Pacific. It was um, John Howard being elected on the same day as Mardi Gras. I was with my parents at Mardi Gras and we were walking back home, you know, back to the train station through Hyde Park and just everyone going, 
oh my gosh, what has just happened? <laughs> and from there, it was the rise of Pauline Hanson and the, the attempts to overturn Mabo and, and Wick and things like that. So these incredible injustices, I think, that you could see, as well as the influences of those three key family members for me, made law a pretty natural choice for me. If you want to change something, then, you know, get in there and, and get stuck into the law. I do want to talk about the really important campaigning law reform work that you're doing. But just before then, I did just want to ask you, because I think it's important to also touch upon the fact that as a lawyer, day to day, you are working on cases where you are dealing with structural racism. As an employment lawyer, obviously, that's a big part of the work that you do. So I wonder if you could maybe give us a little bit of a snapshot of the sorts of issues you're seeing in your work. Certainly, um, that intersection of discrimination is is really common. As as women, we're not just just women. We might be a woman with a disability, a um, trans woman, a um, Aboriginal woman, a woman from a refugee background. So, what we're seeing, particularly in discrimination law, is leaps and bounds in workplace sexual harassment, which is and gender discrimination, which is fantastic. However, there is a ginormous disparity between the rights of women in the space of gender equality and workplace sexual harassment compared to the rights that others have in terms of other discriminations. So as an example, compensation for um, instances of workplace um, gender discrimination or workplace sexual harassment the awards in those cases, and just to put aside all of the, the cases that settle out of court, but the, the awards in those kind of cases can stretch into the hundreds of thousands, whereas the average awards issued by um, courts or tribunals for race discrimination are typically around five to $7,000. It's often not worth running those cases, especially if you then risk having to pay costs. It's, um, it means that the people don't run the cases or they're advised by lawyers not to run the cases because the, the reward versus the, the risk of running them is so great. And that really concerns me because, you know, we have these laws and we need, we need the backbone to make sure that they're actually brought to life because otherwise what, you know, whose law is it and, and who's it's for if it's not being applied? I do now want to turn to some of the really important law reform advocacy you've been doing. And Karen's been leading a campaign to increase police accountability and to, um, I guess, impose some kind of duty of care to investigate. And Karen, I wonder if you could share with us the very powerful story of how this came to be, the issue that you've been so passionate about and what you're hoping the campaign will achieve. Thanks, Larissa. I just want to start by acknowledging the, you know, um, more than 200 years of history in this country of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attempting to hold police to account and attempting to have police treat Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the crimes that are committed against them with the same level of diligence and care that and to be kind, diligence and care, that they um, investigate and prosecute crimes against non-Aboriginal people in this country. So my campaign sits in that context of many, many who have 
gone before me and whose shoulders I get the opportunity to stand on. So it's not a new campaign in, in, in that way. Um, for me, I was a victim, and I say victim because I don't feel like survive. To say survivor, I feel like gives a, a bookend. So I just use the word victim, and I think when we're talking as a lawyer, victim of crime rather than a survivor of crime, when we're talking about sexual assault, all of a sudden we're meant to have survived it and come out triumphant, whereas actually I'm a victim of aggravated child sexual assault. You know, I was 14 at the time and a, f- a friend of mine was also um, assaulted. And the I reported in my early 20s um, back in 2004 and still no justice. I've been following... I'm a lawyer. I can't get through this system. I've been following up police in two states for 19 and a half years. And when you complain about police conduct or the lack of it, you simply go through this process that the Uruk Justice Commission was very, um, had some very strong findings on, that when you complain about police, they simply just investigate themselves. And surprise, surprise, there's nothing to see there. It's only a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion that have a truly external-ish investigation of police conduct. So the same police in the same local area command are investigating the conduct where there's allegations of corruption and other forms of malfeasance and misconduct, you know, in the same local area command. And that's a system that I think is absolutely broken and the Uruk Commission has recommended that that absolutely has to change. The inquiry in Queensland into domestic and family violence and police responses has also recommended that that needs to change. And so I think now we need our political actors to really put in place better better systems for police accountability. But also this concept of whose crimes get investigated. And I think to kind of bring it back to this, this festival of crime writing, I actually think it's a fiction that police investigate. It's a fiction. I grew up watching Law and Order and CSI and all those Murphy Brown and all those shows on TV. If you look at the statistics, what types of crimes do police investigate? What types of victims will they actually pursue an investigation for? Or what types of perpetrators? I really do think we need to be saying, who, whose law is this? Who are police actually protecting? Who are they actually caring about doing an investigation for? Or who are they caring about prosecuting? And I think that that level of discretion, unfortunately, for, you know, 200, what are we up to, 230 years in Australia, that discretion has now, we've seen how that unfettered discretion works. It doesn't work well. And what we now need, I think, is to actually create a law to make sure that every victim of crime can expect the same treatment from police, no matter who you are, where you come from. Um, There has to be that predictability in our justice system. Otherwise, the justice system is cooked. It doesn't work. Kirsten, what drew you to study law? The law is cooked. That's a really good title for a book. Um, Sorry, I just got distracted by that. What drew me to the law? Well, I am a proud Murawari Yuralari woman. I didn't always know the the exact place of my custodianship. I didn't always know where I actually came from. I knew my parents were Aboriginal. 
I grew up as a child in the child protection system. We were always just told, oh, you're from the Camilla Roy Nation, which we never really got told the actual details of what that meant. And so as a child in the child protection system, growing up disconnected largely from my Aboriginal heritage, having two parents who were pretty regularly uh, involved in the criminal justice system being locked up, having a pretty dysfunctional relationship with them. But I always had a very strong sense of who I was um, and I always knew that education was the pathway for me. I, I really loved school and I consider myself one of the lucky ones as much as I'm one of those kids in the, who've come out of the system and not many of us do. I understood very early on that education was the way to get out for me um, and I was very lucky to be in a placement with my younger sister um, separated from my uh, my middle sister, but with my baby sister and in a family placement, not with my Aboriginal family, but with my family nonetheless. And I had a long period of stability in that placement. And I think having loved education for such a long period of time and having the stability and seeing what was possible. I used to watch Arnie Pat O'Shane on the telly yelling at police and thinking, oh, my God, who's this amazing woman? You, you have worked in sort of the human rights area with the Human Rights Commission. You've done work in, t- in the international sphere with human rights, worked as a researcher. I did mention that you'd done some work with the Royal Commission in the Northern Territory on the protection and detention of children, which would have echoed what you were seeing in your work around other jurisdictions. But I wonder if you could share with us some of the things that you see within the system that need changing. Yeah, so probably what I what I forgot to mention was that having experienced the care and protection system as a child and saw it through my eyes of my parents as well in terms of contact and the interaction with the child protection systems, I then became a child protection lawyer um, and advocated and represented parents and became very quickly very frustrated at the way the system operated and, and what I could really achieve for my clients because by the time they get to you at that very pointy end, you really needed to have seen them, you know, five years ago. You need to be a social worker. And that really drove me to the policy space and the human rights space. And so there are many synergies in that work that I was doing as a child protection lawyer, um, working with parents to the policy um, reform work and the human rights work that I've done. Working on two royal commissions has been pretty incredible. I think one of the challenges with those works is they're inherently political, obviously, they're dependent on the governments of the day in terms of the terms of reference you have and often we had very long terms of references. Child protection was actually just tacked right on the end there of the Dondale inquiry and I still have colleagues who've done amazing work working with young people and, um, and families in the Northern Territory who still who are the ones who are accountable to the community about, well, what's this actually delivered for us? And so I think if you ask or do you talk about human rights to blackfellas as I have through both the Child Protection um, Dondale Inquiry and the Disability Royal Commission, which I've which has just finished, blackfellas don't really know what you're talking about. There's kind of this disconnect between human rights and these systems, these legal systems and commissions of inquiry, which purport to be about justice for everybody. When you're talking to mob, they really don't think that that's the case. Um, and they're not shy about telling you that either. The leadership of those two commissions were you know, pretty incredible. Commissioner Mick Gorda did Don Dale, obviously, and um, Andrea Mason was an incredible commissioner to work with. But commissions of inquiry are really limited by 
the legislation that sets them up, so the Royal Commission Act. We had 222 recommendations just in the Disability Royal Commission alone. Um, so I think I had a look this morning and there have been at least 10 Royal Commissions in the last since 2014. And so Royal Commissions, I think we're Royal Commissioned out, our mob, and so when you're trying to talk about you know, realising rights through these processes, mob don't really want to talk to you because we've been removed to the nth degree in the child protection system and we've been talked, you know, at forever about what to do and we just keep having this circularity and ritualism about royal commissions and talking about human rights but not doing human rights. As a First Nations woman, as important as it was to have um, blackfellas involved in those processes and we did some really incredible and meaningful work. Like, I don't need to point out that there's been no political will to implement at least the Dondal recommendations and the communities suffer communities still suffer and I still know families who we got to um, participate in, in hearings that we ran for the disability royal commission and that was a royal commission about the violence and abuse experienced by all Australians with disability and we had parents who had been targeted really by child protection systems because they have a disability and had their children subsequently removed who got formal apologies from the department but then subsequently had their kids removed you know once you know those hearings are over and we can you know we can pat ourselves on the back those families are still actively being um, investigated and you know are under surveillance of the state and so I think I don't think I'll do another royal commission I think two is enough but they are important mechanisms to about around truth-telling but they're really limited and I think that's pretty obvious. I think your advocacy is so powerful because you've really got that lived experience within the system. But I know one of the challenges of working in this space is particularly when you talk about the issues with non-Indigenous people. There's a part of them that still thinks, well, if docs are involved, there must be a reason. And I just wondered if you could share some reflections of working in this space and why it is that we say that it is really racist. You can see that with the over-representation of the number of our kids in out-of-home care that continues to increase. But you're right there at the coalface and you've seen it in action. What would be some of your reflections that continue to say that there actually is an element of racism in, in what we're seeing in those figures? Well, as we were saying before, the law is cooked. There is no acknowledgement um, of the structural disadvantage that mob face and there's no attempts to really fix that. Um, particularly in a child protection sense, we used to have this provision 106A and there have been some recent changes to that in New South Wales. But essentially as a young practitioner, I'd be representing a mum or a dad and 106A effectively means any child that you have that's removed can be used, uh, can be presumed that you any subsequent children you have are in need of care. So if you have a baby and it's removed... Any subsequent child you have is likely to be removed and to be deemed to be in need of care and protection. And that's a really high barrier to overcome. I think because we do a lot of hand-wringing around talking about this wicked problem but not a a lot of um, action around addressing some of those systemic issues and barriers for families and talking about poverty and addressing poverty, providing appropriate family support to people. And I had a lot of clients who, you know, had a dirty house and they had five kids and the dad had just gone to jail and docs are on them. They weren't trying to provide them support. It's more about the surveillance and removal and it's geared towards that legal process of removal than actually providing mum with support. And so certainly there are cases where there are legitimate um, harms that are perpetrated against children and cases to be made. But in my observation, vast majority of them were about 
poverty and neglect, and those are the primary reasons that bring children into to the attention families to the attention of child protection authorities. There's an imbalance there, and we keep talking about it like we care about it and doing inquiries and you know Professor Megan Davis has done some really important work about the family's culture review yet another commission of inquiry which we won't implement and so I just think we're sick to death of doing these processes and nothing changing we're not inherently bad people we've survived on this continent for a long time looking after our families and I think a little bit more recognition and support around the structural disadvantage could make a real difference. You're listening to highlights from a session I hosted at the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival called Whose Law and Who's It For? I chatted with First Nations lawyers Kirsten Gray and Karen Isles and writer and academic Tony Birch about how Western law is imposed on our people and what the consequences are. Tony Birch writes fiction and poetry but is also an academic. He has lived experience with the criminal justice and child protection systems. Karen Isles talked about how even as a lawyer she hasn't been able to get justice for the alleged aggravated sexual assault she experienced as a 14-year-old. Karen says this is an example of how broken the criminal justice system is and questions the types of crimes that tend to get investigated and the profile of perpetrators the police focus on. Kirsten Gray shared how she found education was the way to bring stability to her life. Kirsten grew up in the child protection system with low expectations placed on her. But one teacher pushed her and encouraged her to stick with education and go into law. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, RN, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, we've got more highlights from a panel I hosted at the Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Whose Law and Who Is It For was an engaging and frank discussion with First Nations lawyers Karen Isles and Kirsten Gray and writer Tony Birch about the impacts of imposing a colonial legal system onto Indigenous people. But first, here's some music from Thelma Plum. This one is called The Brown Snake.
That's The Brown Snake by Thelma Plum. Writer Tony Birch came from a community of extreme violence. He says despite having a good academic job now, he still feels like he's looking over his shoulder that he's being surveilled. He grew up in a family worried social workers were going to turn up at any minute and judge them. Yeah, I mean, first off, it it might seem off off topic completely, but I do want to say something that post-referendum, where there's been a lot of anguish and disappointment, when people have asked me about it, I've said quite openly that something, one thing that I found uplifting and remarkable is that there is a younger generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are doing remarkable work that we often don't hear about because they're not in that public domain of you know, so-called leaders or spokespeople. And I think the media is at great fault here, and I'm not criticising those people, but only going to a very select group of people to get an opinion. And I think what we've listened to this morning is further evidence of the remarkable work being done by these two women, but of course by many women and, and, and men all over Australia. And it frustrates me when I think of the dynamic work that um, is being talked about, that one is that it doesn't get a lot of airtime because I think if people listen to what's been said this morning, they would be much more open to the fact that we can look after our own business as long as we're given the, the, the authority to do so. So I do want to say that. I think a couple other things that are really important to me that, I, that I've listened to is that, I mean, it is that, you know, what are your rights? And one thing I, I could reflect on is I've had a lot to do with lawyers when I was a younger person. I was in court all the time when I was a kid. I've got into a lot of trouble and my family, yeah, I've had people in my family who are murdered and I've, I've had people in my family who have murdered other people. Um, so we have a long association with the Victoria Police. But one of the things that I, I've known inherently since I was could ever remember is that we didn't have any rights. So the, the police could do what they wanted to you. So therefore your life is about how do you negotiate around that? How do you avoid that? How do you strategize? So I knew as a five-year-old kid that you never talk to police. And I knew that, yeah, I was an altar boy and I, I knew that before I knew the Ten Commandments. My mother and my grandmother had a, a lifelong strategy of how they would deal with welfare and social workers, you know, with the threat of having your kids removed. So the horrible legacy of that of... Um, yeah, my mother's 85 and she's now on a walking frame, but she still, if I went to my mother's this morning at seven o'clock, she'd be hosing the footpath, the gutter, she's already vacked the house. Yeah, everything's spotless because from the day that she was born and when we were born, my grandma would say, social worker can come for your house any time of day or night. They will look for any excuse and you can't give them that excuse. So you kept the house spotless. Not me, but the, our family don't mind a drink. But you get rid of all the evidence of that as, and, you know, just a social drink. So that level of surveillance and how you respond to that is a constant in, in my life. And now that I'm not affected by that, so I've worked at university for a long time and I have a, a very good job, I'm still hyper-surveillant. And people who don't know you from that background don't understand that. Blackfellas understand it inherently. And I think that that's the legacy that you live with. So, and it's a legacy that is difficult when you're thinking, like I've got five grown-up kids and grandkids. I don't want to have to school my grandkids like that, but I'm also fearful of 
they will have an idealized image of what their life will be when it not won't be, it may not be that way so those those two things to me are key and because of that and although this book is historical in that sense i come from a family of extreme family violence within the family and within the wider community and i'm not saying the aboriginal community i'm saying the fitzroy community so I went to a Catholic school and you know, what you learn very quickly is men of any ethnic persuasion know how to give you a belt. So my Greek and Italian mates at school would come to school with the same bruises that I had. The way that I grew up is that there was no, there was nowhere to take that. Nowhere. It was dealt with with such secrecy. And, I've ri- and Larissa would know I've published on this before. Several women in my life, including women in my family, resorted to summary justice to escape men. In a couple of cases, that was the the killing of men in their life. And in other cases, (laughs) I know I I shouldn't laugh, My, my cousin attempted to poison her husband unsuccessfully several times. But luckily the judge, and this is only seven years ago, when he realised the shocking violence she'd been subject to, he he let her walk, uh, even though it was clear that she'd, she'd tried... You know, anyone who's planning it, rat sack won't necessarily kill your partner, by the way. I think people are staying away from the mushrooms too these days, but women and children sees Joe, who lives with his mother Marion and his sister Ruby, spend his summer holidays with his grandfather Charlie while Ruby's away for, the, for that period. And during this time, his aunt Una, Marion's sister, comes to stay and Joe notices the bruises on her body. So you can see with that set up how Tony gets into the world that he's just spoken about. And I wondered if you could maybe talk about the ways in which your book shows more broadly how society fails women and children around violence, not just the legal system, but the church and society in general. What are your reflections and how do you draw this out in the story? Yeah, and it it doesn't even get to the legal system as in courts or or the law. And I know I'm talking historically, but I know this is a very contemporary issue, obviously, as we've just heard. It's shocking for me to hear that my younger daughters, who are 25 and 26, went to a very liberal sort of lefty, woke high school in inner Melbourne, and they've been shocked to find out that some, not all, there's some lovely young men that they were friends with from school, but some of those men, once they got into adulthood and got into a more masculinist culture, have perpetrated violence against women who, and it has shocked them because it's not something they're used to or or that friendship group was used to. So, But it is a historical story. It doesn't get to the um, justice system. And I think the way that I wanted to discuss this was was firstly that the women involved in this and witnessed through the eyes of the children, there is no, there is no way out unless they find a way out. Marion, who there is no violence within this family. It's a very loving family and um, both Joe and his older sister Ruby have a very loving relationship with their grandfather, which is vital. The point being, though, that when they seek justice... They firstly go to the parish priest because they're nominally a Catholic family and he refuses to help but simply because Una, the one who's assaulted, is not married to her partner but is living with him and he says he will not help someone who is living in sin. And I still remember these sermons from when I was an older boy, the, the rabid 
sermons against women who were risque, against women who might look to procure an abortion, coming from the priest at, at my church when I was a kid. They then approach, or Marion approaches her ex-husband, who is not a violent man himself, but he's a career criminal. He also refuses to intervene because he has a business relationship with the, the perpetrator and he doesn't want that affected. And then Marion talks to her father, Charlie, and he was a wonderful character to draw because he was a very loving, beautiful man. And Charlie, when he realises his daughter, Una, has been assaulted, he does go into a, a rage and he wants to seek vengeance against this man but he's incapable of it because he, he can't be violent. So because of his own softness and love, he can't protect his own daughter because no one else will. No, the police aren't even, there's no sense that you would go to the police. So the only resort to those women is to take matters into their own hands. So that was really important. But I suppose the other important issue, Larissa, which is the real legacy when Joe sees that first evidence of his aunties of the violence. But the pivotal scene in this book for me is later when Ruby, the 13-year-old girl, comes and sees her auntie's body and she literally bathes her auntie and almost cleanses her auntie of this violence. And to me, that's the strongest childhood memory I have of one and I've written about this once before of, you know, I'd go into a milk bar and I'd see a woman in the shop and you'd see her eye made up and you'd see a little cut, a curved ring in you that was from a wedding ring because you'd seen that on your mum. So you'd know that person would have been assaulted and you'd be really embarrassed if she saw that you saw because it would make her feel embarrassed because you had to maintain that veil of secrecy. That was one, but... For me, when people ask me how I think about violence when I was a kid, my strongest memory is of my older sister regularly having to bathe my mother's head when it, she'd have you know, quite deep cuts and she wouldn't go to the doctor to get her head stitched. So my sister would have to try and look after her. And that's my strongest memory of, of strangely, my strongest memory of childhood violence is not of the violence, it's of my older sister giving my mother the care that she needed when she couldn't get it anywhere else. I thought I might get you to just to do a quick reading. I'm mindful we're running out of time, but the book's so lovely. And I thought one of the things, I mean, it's powerful, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, but there's strength and love in there as well. You really explore the silences around violence, the fact that people see those scars or the covering up and there's sort of a understanding that you don't talk about it. And I thought we might get you to just do a quick reading to give everyone a bit of a taste of the power of the book and then just see if yeah. Kirsten and Karen have any comments. The evening Una knocked at her sister's front door. Her face was heavily made up with foundation, rouge and eyeliner. Regardless, she couldn't mask the shadow of a deep bruise under her right eye. Marion hadn't missed the damage and opened her mouth, about to speak before checking herself. She knew instinctively that, initially at least, she'd have to go along with Una's charade. Experience had taught Marion that when dealing with troubled women in the family, at work or on the street, silence was a necessity, and accusations, even anger directed against the man responsible for a broken face, could be fatal if the truth was ever discovered. A single word in the wrong place could be received as a statement of failure. Patience for loved ones 
often seething with anger or gripped by sadness for the victims of violence, was an inherited skill. This is unexpected, love, Marion said as casually as she could manage, walking ahead of her sister along the hallway. Is there something up with you? Nothing really, Una replied, her voice evaporating as she spoke. I felt like a walk and thought I'd come for a cup of tea. Una was in no doubt that her older sister had seen through her disguise. Her only wish at that moment was that Marion would not force her to speak the words that would break her spirit even more. Joe looked up from his dinner plate at Una and smiled. He was always happy to see her. Hello, beautiful, Una said. Hello, Una, Joe said, seemingly seemingly oblivious to the bruises on her face. Are you hungry, Marion asked her sister. Let me fetch you a plate. Una cradled her stomach as if she was about to be sick. I'm not hungry. Just a cup of tea would be nice. She appeared unsteady on her feet. Please sit down, Marion said. She wrung her hands anxious about what she should say. She would need to find a way to raise the issue of Una's bruised face, but couldn't do so while her son was in the room. Thank you. Um, Give me my book back. (laughs) Kirsten, did you have any reflections after what Tony said? Uh, As you you sort of reflected, Larissa, there's there's a lot in there around the the illusions of violence and then the, the strength and care at the family level, but the silence as well. And I can only really talk about this through the lens of experience which I've had recently and there's a lot talked about First Nations people and violence but when we're demonised in that light and a lot of that's probably not um, accurate but I recently lost my sister due to complications to domestic violence, my baby sister that I grew up with and um, listening to that I just hear the way our family knew different parts of um, what was happening to her as her sister, her elder sister I didn't really hear about it until she was hospitalised. And so just seeing the the photos of what um, had happened to her and just the enormity of violence that was um, heaped upon her and the care that and holding her while she's in hospital, but also the the failures of systems that exist around our people as well. And I just think it's such an incredibly complex issue and there's a lot that families um, have to deal with and the way that they try to not aggravate the situation and also try to protect their family members but also with the silence I think my sister might have found incredibly hard as well even though she constructed different narratives and what she would tell us we would all get together after the fact and try and reconstruct what was going on with her and so I just think um, I'm really excited to read the full book um, Tony but it's it's a very very um, important important story. Thank you for for sharing um, a lot of a lot of emotion, and to me, I think that sometimes the positioning of violence against First Nation women in this in our country and globally is that it's a problem that is within communities, and it's a First Nations issue, and First Nations people must sort it out themselves. Whereas the majority of violence experienced by First Nations women are not perpetrated by First Nations men. It's perpetrated by non-Indigenous men. And I think that sometimes gets lost. And the feeling of trapped and hopelessness I've had in my own life of this and this conundrum of hearing and knowing that that this legal system, this police system, 
the justice system has never been there for for, for actually the majority of Australians, <laughs> um, but particularly not for First Nations um, women, children and men. You know, so on the one hand, it's this thing of going, you, you know that the cops are not going to do anything. You know that the services aren't going to do anything. But where else do you go? Are you meant to just sit there in silence and put up with this stuff? I only watched The Godfather like 12 months ago for the first time ever. And the first scene is this father coming to the godfather and saying, my daughter was raped, the police and the courts have, have let us down, so godfather, can you please go take matters into your own hands? That's the opening scene. It's like this story is as old as the hills of who is this justice system for? As a solicitor, as a lawyer, I've got to believe in the justice system being capable of reforming itself but, man, that's hard. I think I want to add something, and I, I, I thank you again for, for the words of, from both of you. There are issues here that are really relevant for me, is that in this novel, by the way, the perpetrator is, a, is an non-Aboriginal man, but there is a real difficulty. So then my personal story, the perpetrator of violence in our family is my father, who's an Aboriginal man, and therefore the complexity of this is that we're a family who never would be secretive about this. Thankfully, my mother refuses to be, to be silenced. But I understand also that you're dealing with a legacy and, a, and attacks on First Nations people where those stereotypes of negativity can be reinforced just by what you're talking about. So I'm always constantly aware of that. One of the things I've learned throughout my adult life is that so – Prior to where I am now, I was at um, Victoria University for five years in the Mundani Balak Academic Centre, led by an amazing Yorta Yorta friend of mine, Karen Jackson. And what I've always found, if I'm in a discussion with a group of Aboriginal people, and that discussion is led by Aboriginal women, there's a great sense of safety in that discussion. There's a great sense of openness and honesty in that discussion. So when we gather around and we talk about yeah, what's happened in our family life and the you know, stories that are similarly terrible in relationship to my upbringing, you can have stories that empower you by sharing them. Once you go outside that space to either a mainstream situation, or, and I'll be honest, sometimes just if you're with Aboriginal men, you don't feel safe and the, the, the discussion shifts. So one of the things I've learned from life experience is that yeah, if we're talking about how we're going to stop these these issues or how we're going to make sure we get legal um, justice, we have to have Aboriginal women at the forefront of those discussions. Not, I don't think equally. I think they've got to run the show. They've got to run the show because that's the, that's the only time I ever feel totally safe to have those discussions, except if I'm in a room full of strangers I've never met before. <laughs> that's a panel from the recent Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. I discussed whose law and who's it for with writer Tony Birch and lawyers Karen Isles and Kirsten Gray. Thank you to my guests for sharing their very personal perspectives on this very big topic. That's the show for now. Join us again next time for our year in review as we recap the highs and lows in Indigenous affairs in 2023. 
This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Sarah Allerley and Jay McAllister. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. Thank you.